Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yardena Osman, here with my friend and Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Sukkot, Daf Samach Dalet, page 54. So Anne and I, when we were trying to prepare, you know, recording this, uh, we were really struck by, you know, sort of the uh, typical mental gymnastics that the Gemara does based on this Mishnah that we read yesterday about the number of shofar blasts that were made in the Beit HaMikdash, depending on the day, the circumstances, what rituals were being done and what korbanot were being done. And so I really just want to focus on one little piece here that's on Amud Aleph that I thought was an interesting point here. Um, I'm sort of reading in the middle of a large discussion, but hopefully I, I picked out uh, the right the right place. And so the Gemara says the fan, following, or they're sort of asking a question. And so the Gemara basically says, when this Mishnah came to teach all the different cases of how the Tekiyat Shofar, you know, falls out and how we calculate all the different numbers of blasts that need to be made, why didn't they teach the case of a Rosh Hashanah that falls out on Shabbat? Because in that case, there's three uh, Musafs that day, right? Three additional offerings, three additional korbanot, the Musaf for Rosh Hashanah, a Musaf for Rosh Chodesh, and a Musaf for Shabbat. And the total would still come out to be 48 blasts, but it's interesting that that's not the case that the Mishnah uses to illustrate um, the 48 blasts. And so part of the reason why the Gemara brings this here is because there's these two different opinions of Rabbi Acha uh, Bar Hanina, and then there's also the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer Ben Yaakov about, you know, when do they actually blow with the uh, the shofar with the water libation? But, you know, it, but but the essential question here is, why didn't they go through this additional case? You'll still get to 48, but this is in itself its own unique case. And then the Gemara sort of kind of rejects this, you know, question and says, Erev Shabbat Yaakov. So it says, no, the reason why the Mishnah didn't teach that case of Rosh Hashanah is because the Tana was really trying to teach the case of the Arab Shabbat that falls out on a Chag in order to teach the Halacha, according to Rabbi Yezer ben Yaakov, who held that you didn't, you know, blow the Shofar on the 10th stair. And so then the Gemara asks this interesting question with, is anybody saying, let the Tana teach this case? And let him not teach this case, or let him teach this case, or not teach, uh, or not teach this case. And then the Gemara answers, "Tana v'shayar, my shayar, dahai shayar." So the Tana basically, the Gemara answers, didn't list all possible cases. He teaches one case, and then he leaves out another case. And then the Gemara basically wants to know, well, what case did he omit? Right, that he omitted that's other than this Rosh Hashanah case as well. But I think, and so they conclude with Shayar Erev Pesach. He also admits the case of what happens on Erev Pesach. Like how many, because remember the, you know, there were three, and we learned this in Masach Pesachim, there were sort of three groups um, when they uh, brought the Korban Pesach, right? It was done in three shifts. They would recite Halal. And when you recited Halal, you would have to blow the shofar as well. So to, with that, there could be as many as 27 additional blasts um, from the, you know, uh, on that day as well. And then you had the 21 of a regular day. So then you would also get to 48. 
I think this raises an interesting question about what the role of Mishnah is and what actually got included in the Mishnah. And I may be overreading the text a little bit, but I do think it's here, which is that some of what the Gemara is saying here is that it's not the role of a Mishnah that we learned to necessarily include every single possible permutation. And although the job of the Gemara very often is to take a Mishnah and say, okay, does it include that? Does it pertain to this case? What is the case that it's really trying to get at? Here, the Gemara sort of is making a comment by saying, no, the Tana came and just wanted to teach this case and didn't want to teach the, uh, these other cases. They were trying to, the Tana was trying to make a point about one particular case. And so I think that's something important to keep in mind when we read Mishnah on its own, that each Mishnah is itself, in itself is not necessarily meant to be there to include every single possible permutation of a particular halachic scenario. And I think, you know, that's an important way to read Mishnah. And the Gemara itself also, basically on this stop, is really openly admitting that. That's not the methodology. It's not to say that one Mishnah has to include everything. And so I thought this was like a little bit of an interesting meta comment about what Mishnah is in itself, right? Atana is allowed to teach something because that's just the case that they wanted to deal with. They didn't necessarily want to get into every single possible case. I think the reason why it's puzzling to the Mishnah, or to the Gemara, excuse me, and why they make that comment is because if you read the way the Mishnah on the previous page on Samach Gimel is, is set up, you know, it says, the first line is, There's sort of this blanket statement of, you can't go below 21, you can't go above 48. So the Mishnah is sort of written with a language a little bit in a way that it seems like, oh, this is giving us all the possible permutations. And yet the Gemara comes to basically conclude, it's not giving us all the permutations. The Tana just wanted to teach it this particular way. So I think that's exactly the challenge, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. I think there are plenty of times when the Mishnah is precise and does give all the possible cases and presents it as if it's a list that this is going to include every case. And lo and behold, in fact, if you test it out, it does include every possible case. I think this Mishnah is worded. It, it gives that feel of, um, you know, here we are. We're going to present the, the at least the maximum and the minimum of all the different cases, except for then when the sages sat down and, you know, tested it out, they discovered that, lo and behold, there were other cases that weren't included. And there's no alternative, but to, I think, but to, conclu to conclude, oh, they didn't really mean all the possible cases, even though sometimes the Mishnah does. Right. And I think it's just, you know, you almost have to take each Mishnah on its own. And that's a little bit of what the Gemara does. Is this one that's all permutations? Is this one that's just a specific case? And if it's a specific case, which Tana does it align with? Even if it's a one that's all the permutations. Like, so I think that's also partially why the Mishnah, why the Gemara, keep mixing up the terms here, gets very caught up sometimes in like, who is the Tana? Because I think ultimately that's what Mishnah is. It's a particular teaching of a particular Tana for a particular halachic scenario. And it's not necessarily meant to be all encompassing of everything at all times. Fair enough. Um, okay. The next bit that I want to talk about, it's not exactly the next bit on the daf. I'm somewhere in the middle, even towards the end of Ahmed Bet, um, is a case that would never happen in nowadays, meaning in terms of the way the calendar will work. 
Specifically, the Gemara talks about the case, and I'll read a bit inside, the case of where um, where Yom Kippur falls out on Erev Shabbat, right? And then there's a whole discussion about the exactly what the what the blasts are going to be, the shofar blast, and so on. But the point I want to make before I even get into the, the daf itself is that our calendar is rigged so that this never happens. That we never end up with two days of fundamentally not only an isur malacha, right, a prohibition against doing malacha like we have on Yantif, That we never have two days of not only an isur malacha but also no of for food in two days in a row. We can't do that on Shabbos, and we can't do it in Yom Kippur, and they never line up next to each other. You never have Yom Kippur fall out on Friday. You never have Yom Kippur fall out on Sunday. There are ramifications for the rest of the calendar. Like what day the Lehah Seder can fall out, it will never be on a Thursday night, for example. Things like this that were rigged into the fixed calendar. Um, there's a whole slew of scholarship on exactly why this might be, but I think one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that in the time of the Gemara, really beforehand, right, they didn't rely on the calculations, even though they knew the calculations of when the, the new moon had to be. They were relying on the process of witnesses coming to testify to the, of the new moon. And so they knew a practice, you know, it's going to be this day or that day is going to be Rosh Chodesh. And then that means that this day or that day, everything follows from testimony. Um, so back in the day when they were, when they established Rosh Chodesh, and in this case Rosh Hashanah, on the basis of the witness testimony, then it was possible for Yom Kippur to fall out on a Friday or a Sunday, meaning they weren't using the rigged calendar yet because the process of having the eyewitness testimony was considered, you know, the the more, um, that it's a priority. Okay, so here we go. This is how they're figuring out. They're not figuring in this case out the question of can it happen, but what happens when it does happen? Rabbi Zera said that they were studying in the school, in the yeshiva of Rav, in Babylonia, Hava Amre, they said, meaning they were talking about this brighta. Hadatanya, Yoma Kipurim Shachaliot Erev Shabbat, Lohayu Tokin, of Motse Shabbat, Lohayu Mavdilin, Divre Hakolhi. So they had a brighta which said that on Yom Kippur, when Yom Kippur occurred on Erev Shabbat, namely Friday, they did not sound the usual shofarot to get people to stop doing their malacha and also, you know, to, to let them know that Shabbos is coming. Those were the, they will make these. Shofar blast to know, okay, now you stop doing malacha, and now already we're going to mavdil, we're going to distinguish between the day that is chol and the day that is Shabbat. And likewise, if Yom Kippur was Motzei Shabbat, then they didn't say Havdalah after Shabbat, because it just went straight into Yom Kippur, and they didn't make a, any distinction there. And this, according to this breita, was divrei hakol. It was a unanimous uh, approach to the halacha. Kislikit lahatam shimon ben pazi so then what he says, when he ascended, he, he went up to there, meaning to Israel, from Bavel, he came to the land of Israel, and he found Rabbi Huda, the son of Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi, and he would sit around, he was sitting and learning, I suppose, and he says this, this whole position about what you would do with the Shofar Road when, um, when Yom Kippur would fall out on Friday or on Sunday, it's all Rabbi Akiva. And the other sages would disagree with Rabbi Akiva on this position. So as opposed to it being divrei hakol, as opposed to it being unanimous, it was simply Rabbi Akiva and others disagreed. So that's, I think, an interesting question to begin with. Like, I, I find it hard to understand the disagreement, the idea that they should have been blowing the shofar on Yom Kippur to say that Shabbos is coming, or on Yom Kippur to say that Shabbos is over, I find Rabbi Akiva's view here, if it, is, if it really was only Rabbi Akiva's view, I find it to be 
kind of the obvious one because of the way we relate to Yom Kippur. Like, of course, we're not going to start blowing, you know, alarms that are the kind of thing that distinguish between Chol and Shabbat on Yom Kippur, which is Shabbat Shabbaton. It is, you know, it is like Shabbat in its degree of sanctity, if not more so. So I find it interesting to think that people would disagree and say that they should have been blowing the alarms. But the point is, you know, from all of this, what we see is clearly they were handling the case of Yom Kippur when it fell out to be on a Friday or on a Sunday, which again, which we don't have anymore. It doesn't happen anymore. So the Gemara is going to address this, meaning not the question of whether it happens anymore, but again, this thing of whose whose view is it? Lo kashya ha rabbanan ha acherim hi. So the Gemara says it's not a difficult. It's not difficult. This meaning our Mishnah. Our Mishnah, which says that there's always, where you're always going to have it this year, didn't what you said, that there's always a Friday during the Chag, that will be according to Rabbanan, who say that you make sure that you push off Rosh Hashanah to make sure that Yom Kippur will not be next to Shabbos. But this Mishnah, which um, which is, where is the Hacha? Um, this Mishnah teaches that, the fa- the, that we've got Korbanot on Shabbat that would indeed be sacrificed at the end of Shabbat, that is Yom Kippur, in which case Rosh Hashanah would not have been postponed. And that is the opinion of, quote, Acherim, meaning, basically, the Gemara says, yes, we don't have a difficulty here because, in fact, there was a machloket. There were differences of opinions and exactly when you would rig the calendar to make sure that Yom Kippur couldn't be next to Shabbos and when you would not. So the very fact that this is like, I find it interesting that this is subject to debate when the first claim of the Gemara is that there was no dispute then the claim is that it was only Rabbi Akiva versus Acherim. But then the next version of this is Rabbanan versus Acherim. And Acherim seem to be, you know, the minority view. As a, uh, You know, it's an interesting, um, I guess it's an interesting question exactly how they line all this up to begin with. Um, yes, yeah, so that's, that's it. Meaning the part that I find the most fascinating is seeing how it would be as a, as a matter of, you know, their reality that, in fact, Yom Kippur could come out on a Friday or on a Sunday and how they had to handle it. And then, of course, the fact that it has been rigged out of existence. Well, it's interesting to see that things that we take as sort of standard, it's always been this way, you know, for our calendar, we see in the Gemara, like, actually things changed. It wasn't always this way. And that halacha and the setting of halacha is actually a process and it takes it took time over hundreds of years and so I think we have to be open to a little bit that just the way we practice some things you know a certain way this now wasn't always practiced that way then um and recognizing that I think the rabbis realized you know sometimes things have to be changed or tweaked or set down a different way but the other piece of that is you know because I don't want someone to misinterpret and be like oh halacha can just be changed any way you want I think there's something particular with the case of the calendar, because the calendar is really something that Hashem gave us. If you look, you know, in the, you know, in the Torah, it's, it's Perak Yudbet and Shemot, um, you know, the Kiddush HaChodesh, this is something that we specifically are allowed to change and have control over. So I, you know, I just want to sort of say it with that particular caveat, like it's built into the system that way, that that's something that we're supposed to be able to do. Well, that's our DAFCA discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us for view. It's where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about this stuff. And I would say even the role of rabbinic authority here in establishing the calendar. Uh, thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 